feeding multiple times pre-furrow definitely works. Uh, other things to reduce furrowing duration, uh, calcium chloride. There's two studies now showing that feeding calcium chloride pre-furrow reduces furrowing duration. Kind of several studies showing it reduces stillborns. Uh, there's a little bit of data showing increased phytase trims furrowing duration. So I think there's some pieces to the puzzle that already exist, and I think we're going to learn more here in the next couple of years. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Zinpro, Essential Trace Minerals, Exceptional Performance, Ivonic, We Are Sciencing the Global Food Challenge, AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Swine management to the next level. Cloudfarms.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Mark Nauer, who is an associate professor at North Carolina State University. Mark, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. How about yourself, Laura? Doing well. The sun is shining, and that's always a great day here. (laughs) Good. Good deal. Well, Mark, um, we're glad to have you on the podcast today. And I think uh, before we really jump into the topic at hand, I would like for you to give the audience a little bit more background about who you are and, and what you currently do. Yeah, I grew up in uh, southern Wisconsin, and we had a, about 50 sows, pure line, pure line sows, and some few Angus cattle, and involved a lot in uh, livestock and meats judging growing up, and uh, went to Iowa State for undergrad and masters, and NC State for my PhD, and then got down the end of the uh, recession, and luckily I had was able to get a postdoc over in the Netherlands, otherwise I was going to have to go to Idaho of a town of like 500 people and do a postdoc. So we got lucky there and then went to pork board for a year, director of animal science, and then somehow got uh, tricked into coming to academia and have been at NC State now for like 11 years. So this episode's sponsored highlight is about Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Well, we're glad to have you on today, Mark. I think I think you have some really interesting perspectives, and, and you and I have talked many times in the past. And I, I would say you're probably most well-known today for your calipers. If, if anybody uses the word now or the next word I hear is caliper, but that's not all you do. Um, so one of the things that I know you're passionate about is piglet mortality or piglet survivability or livability, whichever one of the words you'd like to use today. Um, so tell me a little bit about why you've become passionate about this topic. Well, we've this, uh, this piglet nutrient access piece, we've been working on it for 
several years now on the nutrition side and production management side, and especially the genetic side. And, uh, you know, it relates to throughput, all the different components we'll talk about. Um, it, of course, relates the piglet mortality piece. And when I sit down and sit back and think about the piglet mortality piece, I mean, there's already some in the industry that are doing it quite well. So for one example, uh, Thomas Livestock out at Broken Bro, Nebraska, you know, they're doing extremely well. Others are doing it extremely well. So I think we can go and talk to some of those industry people and they can kind of direct us down, you know, teach us what they're doing, direct us down some paths of, uh, of how we can improve. Um, I emailed uh, Steve Horton last year at Thomas Livestock and, and he put forth some concepts I thought were, were interesting and important. He talked about having the, the temperature right for the sow and the piglet, making sur sure the sows are calm and have feed in front of them. Uh, they're only getting them up once a day. And I actually got out to visit there a few years ago and they talked about different tricks as far as uh, putting, you know, potato starch or peanut butter on the, the nipple to tell if they're drinking or in the feeder to tell if they're eating. So you wouldn't even have to get them up. Thought that was pretty interesting. So a lot of good concepts can come from those commercial people that are already uh, doing it. Um, and also when you think about the piglet mortality piece, uh, there's a little bit done that's on the farrowing crate side. There's a nice study out of Illinois that looked at the width of the farrowing area and they saw that five foot versus five and a half foot wide, there was no difference in piglet survival. I think that was like 800 sows per treatment, a nicely powered study. But then if we look through, there's, again, there's not a ton of literature on the farrowing crate dimensions, right, in relation to piglet survival. But there is some anecdotal evidence that the length of the farrowing crate potentially impacts piglet mortality. So is that related to sow comfort? Um, farrowing crate dimensions, you feel like we should have that figured out by now, right? We have enough farrowing crates in the U.S. that we should have it figured out what size we need but there's probably some opportunities there. Uh, some other stuff we've been doing on the piglet mortality side. A few years ago, uh, uh, Matthew Ruda with, with Swine Tech, he, he really inspired me. Uh, I, I consider him a friend and a big asset to the industry, but when he first came out with his uh, smart guard, here's this University of Iowa graduate and coming out with this technology and having a degree or two from Iowa State, I'm like, oh my gosh, no! We got to, how are we going to let this Iowa guy in here? And so that really inspired me. I, I tried to work on what I call the pig saver mat. And I made some prototypes and used uh, some high loft non-woven and some memory foam to put under the sow covered in like a tarp. And I don't know, from an implementation standpoint, I'm not sure if it was going to fly or not. So but basically something that she could lie down on and it would collapse, but when she stood up, it would pop up and keep the piglets from getting under her. So if anybody wants to go and run with that idea, feel free. But I do consider Ruta asset. Um, we could come to the technology piece, and I think he's going to help lead us in some good directions. So mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I like that idea of, of having something that would elevate um, around that sow as long as she stays cool and comfortable, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And there's the lift crate that's out there that appears to have some success, but a high degree of, you know, maintenance perhaps. So, Right, right. Keeping it simple is going to be important for sure. Well, let's go back a little bit. We 
we were talking about South Comfort and you mentioned um, this crew at, at Thomas Livestock and you threw out that we need to keep the environment at the at the right temperature for each of the animals, right? We know the sow is going to have a lower temperature requirement than those newborn piglets, but what temperatures are you thinking about when you say ideal? Yeah, and I think those are those are questions for industry experts. You know, they're going to know more so than I do, but I I am am having an increased interest in the the whole sow cooling piece because uh, when I just this summer we'll have a some information coming out later this year showing large differences in reproduction based on where that sow was located within the farrowing room during the summer. Um, and so the whole sow cooling piece has got a renewed interest in uh, sprinklers and lactation. Do they work? Do they not work? You know, I talked to one uh, supply company and they say drippers for sows work. I talk to others. They say they don't work. I look at the literature. The literature is mixed. I feel like, like that's something we, we may, maybe should have figured out by now too. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it, that's such a difficult thing to study, right? Because different parts of our geographical location will have humidity with the heat. Some will just have the dry heat. And so how those misters and sprinklers all work. Um, again, it's like many things we talk about, even in nutrition, we need to think about the scenario that we're in and apply the best technology. And it's not going to be a one size fits all, but I think we've probably tried to do that quite often in the industry, um, for sure. One of the things that you threw out at the beginning, you used a phrase called, uh, nutrient access. I think I know what piglet nutrient access is, but maybe talk a little bit more about that terminology and, and thought process. So as a geneticist, we can select on either the whole trait. So we could select for say piglet throughput or something, but we could also break it up into component traits. And so this piglet nutrient access, this is kind of how I see the component traits of piglet nutrient access. So it's the number of functional teats, it's piglet birth weight, it's colostrum yield, it's milk yield, it's piglet vitality. So if you start to bring, break piglet nutrient access up into component traits, those five areas is kind of how I see, see it falling out. Each one contributes to the, that pig getting nutrients towards its survival and eventual south throughput. So. Mm -hmm. So you're really looking at, at taking all five traits in, in your selection process criteria. Is that correct? Well, yeah, you could do it either way, right? You could select for a, a combination of those traits, but it, you can look at it from the genetic or the nutrition standpoint too, right? So mm -hmm. each one of these traits, you could make a decision on, okay, I'm going to improve this through genetics, or I'm going to try to improve this through the environment or nutrition. And okay. some may be better suited than others for how you go sure. about trying to improve those traits. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. And then management, of course, gets put in there too. And we talk about pig livability or cholesterol intake and so forth. Okay. That makes sense. So let's jump in a little bit to the those different components, if you will. And I'm going to start with the sow because we've been talking about her today. Um, let's, let's start with the basics. When we're in the guilt developer and we're picking out our, our replacement females, one of the things we're going to do is look at functional teats. So what are we really looking at in terms of how many does a sow need? Yeah, 
number of functional teeth and are you going to count them at any stage of production other than the nucleus? I, you know, I, when we, we've done a lot of work in the last several years, the number of functional teeth and it, they're hard to count. They're, they're really hard to count at guilt selection. They're hard to count in farrowing. People say they're counting them and then you get in there and you match the card to how many teats the sow has and it may or may not match up. And so, but there is improvements going on at the nucleus level. So we'd, we've done a couple large scale studies and each additional functional teat is worth about three tenths of a wean pig. So if you start to take that into account, you can start to put an economic value on that guilt as far as how many teats she has. Uh, but I'm not sure how many if we're going to be counting teats in the multiplier or not. So number of functional teats are, are pretty important. Um, so we've quantified their importance. And then uh, Jeff Weger at Texas A&M did a nice study with Smithfield and really showed that as litter size pushes up against number of functional teats, functional teats become a whole lot more important. So that's a little bit kind of intuitive, but he put the data out there and it really kind of shows that as litter size gets close to your number of functional teat number, functional teats are, are a per, pretty big deal. Um, so you talk a little bit here about how many teats the sow needs and the, the 0.3 pigs numbers um, per each additional teat. Anything else we should be considering when we're looking at functional teats? So as far as how many teats a sow needs, it's potentially two more teats than your total number born. So if you look at some of the recent research, uh, Flowers here at NC State has done, he's quantified that those those hind teats are, uh, are problematic. They don't have as good a colostrum quantity or quality, and uh, pigs that end up there have lower weaning weights. Now, it's also kind of the smaller birth weight pigs that get pushed there, so that's a little bit confounded, but I think it's... Uh, even if you sort that out, you're probably still, you got less colostrum quality and quantity and a little less milk yield coming out of those rear teats. So if you got two more teats than your number born alive, you're, you're on average, you're, you're probably going to be in good shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what about selecting versus that output? Is there anything we should be thinking about? Because I, you know, we always talk about selecting at, at the guilt level, but as you mentioned earlier, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that that teat's going to produce milk or at a acceptable level. So, anything we should be thinking about between the two different between selection and number. So the genetics companies, I think they're looking at it a, a little bit differently depending on the company. So there's one company that I think was a little bit proactive, and they got out in front and they got maybe an extra teat or two on their gilts relative to some of the other companies, but they started selecting for number of teats several years ago. And then now some of the other companies are getting on board. One company has maybe been a little bit more resistant to selecting for number of functional teats. And they're trying it from a different angle as far as maybe we'll put more pressure on litter weaning weight and those rear two teats will get better genetically. So we might not as many need as many teats, but uh, so there's a couple different ways you can do it. But the the more teats you have relative to the number of pigs, it's the data is pretty clear as far as it's going to enhance survival. So, absolutely. Well, I want to take a step back before we go to another one of your your five piglet access um, things to be thinking about. And 
I want to really describe or define what a functional teat is. And you mentioned it. Sometimes we only count them at the nucleus level, or maybe we only count them in the gilt developer. We know over time the sow loses some of that functionality due to age, edema, um, injury, et cetera. So how, how do we define a functional teat? So in our research herd out at Tidewater, uh, we have a genetic selection line where we're selecting for number of functional teats. And we looked at them at birth and looked at them after weaning and look at them at 250 pounds or 300 pounds. And then we look at them again when they're sows and uh, birth, it's pretty hard to count them, but a lot, some a good chunk of nucleuses are doing that because just from a labor standpoint and, and I've come to the realization that's probably okay. That's better than not counting them. Uh, count them at weaning or a little bit after weaning to me kind of appears to be the ideal time because you can get a really close up look at those teats and um, we've identified and other people have done it too in different places what we call a substandard teat and a substandard teat is a teat that's about you know 60 70 percent as big as the other teats right around it so you can identify those kind of right in that after weaning phase and it's almost easier to identify them there than when they get to be 300 pounds. And then you follow that teat through, and when that sow farrows, it's uh, it's still the same size, about 60 or 70% the size of the other teats. And from a small study we did with our grad student, Zach uh, Petmeyer here, we saw that those substandard teats enhance piglet mortality, which was a little bit counterintuitive, but if you think about it, those small pigs can climb onto that small teat and maybe that gives them a little bit better chance. But then that substandard teat um, impaired weaning weight, which makes sense because you got a smaller mammary gland producing less milk. And so those substandard teats appear to be a little bit of a wash, but I mean, ideally you'd probably want a, a fully functional teat. Mm -hmm. One of the things that just popped into my head as we're talking about this and genetic selection, is there any thought that we should be tracking these females from the start? So functional teats, she has 16 as a, a new pharaoh gilt and following her through her lifetime and seeing if there's any potential for genetic selection for the sows that retain the most functional teats. I'm just Thinking about that when we think about culling of, of females and one of the reasons why is low numbers weaned and it could be because of this. Yeah, that's that's a good question, Laura. And some of our early studies we did with uh, partnering with Smithfield, like they're looking at functional teats at the beginning of farrowing and then the end of farrowing and you, some of them dry up and you just don't know why, right? You just don't know. You don't know if because the pig wasn't nursing or if because it, if she just dried up for, you just don't know why they dried up. And so, yeah, it's just, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. That's a topic I think we could talk about all day and yeah. still end up in a circle, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the other key points that you brought up with your piglet nutrient access, one of your five was milk yield. So let's talk a little bit about milk yield with the sow. Um, you know, sometimes there's theories that the sow can only produce so much milk, even if she has 16 mammary glands, that the litter weight's still going to end up being about the same versus a sow that's weaning 12 pigs. What are you seeing? So you can genetically select for 
litter weaning weight. We've known this for 40, 50 years. And so in the past, we've had genetics that selected highly on litter weaning weight. We kind of went away from those genetics. Those genetics maybe didn't have quite the marketing behind them as other genetics. And so it was refreshing in this last year or two, I have heard a genetic company talking about selecting for litter weaning weight. You know, it's just selecting for throughput. We've, we've been there, we've done this before, but as we, so we're kind of cycling back to this selecting on litter weaning weight concept. Very good. How about, so another one of your key five um, was colostrum yield. So milk yield is one thing, but colostrum yield is another. And again, we talk about colostrum being kind of a finite resource, if you will, as pigs are farrowing. What do, what do we know about colostrum yield today and what we can do to help? No, you're exactly right. As far as, you know, we've bred for increased litter size and that sow, she doesn't, she just doesn't magically make more colostrum. It just doesn't magically happen. And so you got more pigs getting the same amount of colostrum results and less colostrum per pig. And so several years ago, we did some studies looking at going over the nutrient requirements for energy and amino acids. And we thought we saw something there, but we probably didn't really. And we did, we tried to repeat it and we couldn't repeat what we saw in the first study. And K-State tried to repeat some pieces of that. And so you'd have to say from that, you know, increasing energy and amino acids over nutrient requirements doesn't appear to be a golden nugget to improve colostrum yield or colostrum quality. So, you know, this colostrum yield piece is, it's potentially the thousand pound gorilla, right? Like we we probably need to get after it. There's more in the diet other than amino acids and energy. And so we probably need to get after some of these other pieces. Look at nursery survivals ticking up, uh, nursery mortalities ticking up. Uh, there's papers out there showing that uh, nursery mortality can be tied to colostrum intake of the pig. And so this colostrum piece, I think we're going to try to circle back to here in the next year or two and see if we can't keep looking for some s solutions on this uh, colostrum yield. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's one of our most critical points when we talk about that newly farrowed pig is that colostrum and, and everybody knows it. It's just a matter of trying to figure out how we enhance it the best way, whether it's through management, nutrition, selection, et cetera, right? One of the, so we're on point number four, I think of your nutrient access uh, circles. So that one will be piglet birth weight. So again, here's another one that we talk about um, you hear the discussions around, well, the uterus can only hold so much weight. And so 16 piglets versus 12 piglets, again, the uterus can only do so much. What are we seeing in terms of piglet birth weight? Because we know it's tied to survivability. Yeah, I got good news for everybody. Uh, piglet birth weights are going to go up. So the genetic companies have been working on it hard. You know, hopefully we don't swing too far the other way, but I'm not sure we're going to do that, but piglet birth weights are going to be coming up. Uh, there's been a lot of selection pressure on the genetic companies to bring up piglet birth weight. In the meantime, again, they've maybe forgot a little bit on average about the, the colostrum piece and maybe a few of the other pieces, but piglet birth weights are going to be coming up. So I'm not near as worried about them as I was five or 10 years ago on the piglet birth weight side. That's good news. Nutri we'll take that. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> 
we'll do it in little pieces, right? And just start and we'll make progress. So the last one of your five nutrient access circles was around piglet vitality. And piglet vitality, at least the way I'm viewing it, is what that piglet looks like when it's first born. Not necessarily a piglet in terms of five days, seven days down the road, but piglet vitality to me is the first pharaoh piglet. Is is that what you're thinking too, or am I off on that mark? No, you're pretty much right on. So I kind of lump stillborns and piglet vigor all into that bucket because stillborns are obviously not vital, but then a pig that comes out that's uh, low energy or hypoxic or whatever, you know, that pig is doesn't have good vitality either and potentially ends up in mortality case. So I kind of lump those stillborns and the, the pigs that aren't very vigorous together. Because if you look through some of these recent studies that have been done uh, where they had farrowing assistance 24-7, they didn't see a difference in stillborns. But then there's difference between the nutritional regimens as far as uh, piglet survival. So were they able there to, was there farrowing assistance if they wouldn't have had farrowing assistance, would they seen a difference in stillborns? So I, I tend to want to lump those together a little bit, the stillborns and the piglets of, of low vigor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we know is associated with piglet vitality is, of course, farrowing duration. And the longer the piglet is, is in the uterus or trying to travel um, from the uterus out, we can see, as you mentioned, issues with hypoxic pigs or or even result in a stillborn. And I know there's been some discussion around farrowing duration. Any tips, tricks that you might recommend to the group today? Yeah, I think we got some some strategies to reduce farrowing duration. There's there's huge variation. There appears to be huge variation across farms, even with the same genetics. So we did a study two years ago and our farrowing duration for our study was around three hours. And one of my former grad students went, who went on to Nebraska did a study that summer in farrowing duration. That herd was like average six hours. That's a huge difference. And the difference in stillborns between those two trials were huge as well. And so, I don't know. It just seems to me we should be able to compare some of these farms and and figure out the differences as far as is what's going on. So our industry average for stillborns is around 7%. I think we can bring that down uh, a couple or several percentage points as an industry. And so the farrowing duration, it's of course it's tied to stillborns, shorter farrowing duration, fewer stillborns, and then probably gives those pigs born last a better chance at colostrum. And uh, again, shorter farrowing duration those pigs that are born alive it's probably going to help piglet vigor as well right and so the farrowing duration is is a piece we probably need to get after and and get shortened up one of the things that i've heard probably a lot of chatter in in the industry over the last year and and there's some nice data out there talks about feeding multiple meals pre-farrow versus the one lump amounts if we're going to feed four pounds a day or break it up into smaller meals. Any suggestions or, or thoughts on that process? Yeah, that was, 
really a nice contribution, I thought, by Peter Thiel over in Europe, presenting us with that information and then the work that Trey Kellner at AMVC has done to implement it, implement it in their system. And then when I just saw Ron Ketchum's recent data, that really widened my eyes as far as what the potential is. We ran some data last summer, uh, feeding multiple meals. It's worked in three different studies here in the U.S. It, it, it really appears to work. Uh, the system we're working with right now, they got feed drop boxes in lactation, and then it goes down into the, uh, what's it called, the Salmax feeder, drops into there. And that, that feed drop system, that makes it pretty easy. They go through and they feed twice a day. And then when they go to the ad lib after everything's farrowed, they just pull the cord wide open. So if you can have a feed drop box, it's a little more cost, but it probably pencils out pretty fast if you can trim your stillborns. So the meat feeding multiple times pre-farrow definitely works. Uh, other things to reduce farrowing duration. Uh, calcium chloride, there's two studies now showing that feeding calcium chloride pre-farrow reduces farrowing duration in uh, kind of several studies showing it reduces stillborns. Uh, there's a little bit of data showing increased phytase trims farrowing duration. So I think I think there's some pieces to the puzzle that already exist, and I think we're going to learn more here in the next couple of years. Um, I got a good feeling about it. I don't I don't have any data to share right now, but I I think we're knocking on the door. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you you kind of hit the big pieces, right? You hit when we talk about the piglet nutrient access. You mentioned the five piglet vitality birth weight, colostral yield, milk yield, and functional teats. And just like you said at the beginning, some of this is going to be management, some of this is going to be nutrition, some of this is going to be probably health, and then of course some of this will be genetic. And so I think you've given a nice um, summary, if you will, of, of different areas that we should be looking at. And as, as you answered my question, you said you might be targeting one in your barns and, and that might be the one that you feel you need the most work on. So they're not all necessarily tied together. Um, so I think that's a really good discussion and a good, again, a good thought process for our audience. It is time to our famous three. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Our company offers specialized technical support for nutritionists, veterinarians, and other animal production professionals. Our portfolio of programs and services include a wide array of high-performing feed solutions, such as essential nutrients, palatability, feed preservation, mycotoxin management, and health by nutrition. To learn more about our company, visit us at www.adiseo.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, Mark, I do appreciate your time today. Um, as you know, one of the things that we ask our guest speakers are these three infamous questions. The first question we'd like to ask today is, do you have a favorite swine resource that you'd recommend to our audience? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, it's interesting with technology, how I feel like the, the speed of learning is potentially picking up. So we have the, the Swine It podcast and some other good podcasts. We have uh, universities and other people are doing a nice job of making these webinars available 
online and on YouTube. So if I can't travel to a conference, I can go pull out the presentations I want and gather information from those speakers. Uh, but largely these days, I just rely on Google Scholar. So that is the go-to. I got a topic, I can get in there, get some papers, get the papers out of those papers. You know, that, if I think about what I was doing back 20 years ago in grad school, how I went about finding papers, and now today it's just, it's just, you can just go so much faster to find stuff. So, so Google, Google Scholar is my answer. Perfect. Yeah, no more photocopying for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> the second question we like to ask, it really comes back to something that's not pig-related. Are there any books or resources that you'd recommend to people that, that's outside of pigs? I admire everybody that has time to do reading outside of their field. So uh, my kids are four and two, and I'll, I'll gladly use them as an excuse. So, And I, <laughs> I enjoy what I do. So my free time reading is... It is in Google Scholar or or the literature. But yeah, there's there's nothing outside of family and and work much for there's no enjoyment reading. <laughs> enjoyment reading is is reading in, in my uh areas I'm working at. So very good. Yeah, I'm I'm sure you have a few kids' books you've been reading, but not none that you'd probably recommend to the audience for, for leisure reading. <laughs> probably not. Unless they have young kids as well. So. That's right. That's right. Well, one of the last questions we like to ask, Mark, is if you can think of somebody in your mind that you define as successful, and success can look different to everybody, so I'm not going to define what success is. What characteristic about that person do you think has allowed them to become successful? Now, this is a tough question because you guys have had a lot of great answers to this question. And the only thing I'd probably uh, put in there, I'm not sure if this has been mentioned or not, is, is listening. Listening, it's a real interesting deal because when I talk to people, and I tend to do it myself once in a while, as I've gotten older, I've got, done a lot better job of listening to people that are younger than me. I think 10 years ago in, in my career, I might have struggled with that a little more, but now as I get middle-aged, a lot of people are younger than me, so I need to definitely listen to the younger people, but then, and I think everybody does it to some degree, you wait, based on who's talking, you wait how much listening you'll be doing to that individual. You know, you'll be, some people, you're going to be all ears, you're going to be listening 100%, and other people, you're going to be half listening, and some people, maybe below half. And there's a lot of smart people out there, and a lot of people can, can add to your thought process. And so I know if things have gotten going as we get out of COVID here, I've been talking to a lot of people and it's interesting. And whether I think I'm going to pull something from someone or not, I try to pull something from about everybody I talk to best I can. And so I would say the the listening piece would be maybe something to, to add. Very good. I don't think we've had that one. So that that's a good one and, and certainly one that we need to, work on in our communication skills as well. Oh, it can so be tough, good. right? You know? Yes, exactly. 
Well, Mark, I again want to thank you for your time today. Uh, we greatly appreciate you being part of the podcast and sharing your information on piglet nutrient access and how that impacts piglet livability. Um, we wish you all the best and, and thank you again. Thank you all. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.